tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? I do the car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult-Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is episode 16 of The Cult-Worthy Classic. Now, this is a fantastic show, folks. I've got two amazing guests. I've got Scott and Frankie of the Shoot the Flick podcast, one of my favorite cinematic podcasts out there. They are hilarious, and this was an amazing time. So the film that we are covering is Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948. And this is a very important film to me, as it was the first Abbott and Costello film I ever saw, which just made me a lifelong fan for Abbott and Costello films. Now, it is not my favorite film, but like I said, it was my introductory film to Abbott and Costello. Not only that, it was my introductory film to the Universal Monster House. I had never seen Frankenstein, Wolfman, or Dracula before I saw this film. And I saw this film when I was like seven or eight years old. So because of this film, I went back and I watched those classics, and it really just changed my life forever and how I view movies and the kind of movies that I like to watch and talk about. So like I said, Scott and Frankie have an amazing podcast called Shoot the Flick. You gotta check them out. So without further ado, let's jump into the show. Have a great time. And I am here with my special guests, Scott and Frankie of the Shoot the Flick podcast. One of my favorite podcasts out there on films and that says a lot because I listen to a lot of film podcasts. And if you're not listening to this one, you definitely need to check it out. I'm going to let them explain it. Scott, Frankie, how you doing? Tell us about your podcast. We're doing good. Uh, my wife does the best explanation of our podcast, so I will oh. let her take it. Okay. Well, uh, my name's Frankie, and we have our podcast, Shoot the Flick. Basically, every week, we are introducing each other to different movies. Uh, we we are a married couple. We've been married for a few years now, but we've been together since we were in high school. So, and we've always loved movies. So every week we expand each other's cinematic viewpoints, introduce each other to something new, and we get both the fan perspective and the first time perspective on different movies. Did you guys get together because of movies? No, we got together because <laughs> we grew up in suburban Long Island and. The pickings were slim, I guess. Oh, I don't wow, know. Wow, wow. <laughs> no, we, we got together because we used to race each other to uh, home uh, home and careers class and try to steal the other one's seat and hide it in the back of the room. Um, but we also were in theater together. We were both theater kids, okay. too. So I guess that, that kind of I was going to ask you that. That aligns of. so much because I was yeah. a theater kid, too. And Frankie, every time you say... Well, today we're going to talk about the movies. I'm like, that's such a theater girl thing. And I didn't even have to ask you. You answered it I for mean, me. Yeah. 
That's fair. I can smell my own. <laughs> trust me. Oh, no. I was just saying that's why whenever like because I'm a big musical nerd mm -hmm. like that started from when I was like a theater kid. But Scott's not a big musical person. So whenever we do musicals, it's particularly interesting because Scott's like, oh, well, I, I have my handful, my handful. And then I'm OK. <laughs> eh. What are some on your handful then? Uh, I've watched Guys and Dolls. Over a hundred times. Okay, that's, that's a winner. That's because he was in our school production of Guys and Dolls. So that's, that's the only reason why he likes Guys and Dolls. Let me guess. You were nicely. No. no. Oh. <laughs> I love that you say that. I was Sky Masterson. Nice. <laughs> Again, because he was the jock, too. That's the thing. He was the jock that also liked theater. So, of course, they put him as, like, the tough guy in the Marlon Brando <laughs> role in Guys and Dolls. I can like, see hysterical. it. Yeah, that would he be in my list of musicals. He was that that came in, like, year, like, senior year, tried out for the musical, never done it before, and got the lead part, and everyone <laughs> hated him. I wasn't Except that, me. I wasn't that bad. Like, I was a theater kid, but, like... Not to toot my own horn, I was a professional theater kid, so I didn't like get into the, all the politics of theatrical thespian stuff in high school. I would literally just walk in, do my role, and leave. I wouldn't get involved in the other stuff. So that's almost the same. I love that for you. Yeah, it's almost the same as like the jock coming in and just being like, I'm the lead part now and not really participating in any of the theater games and after school yes. Pizza Hut parties, you know? I, I love that for you, Siri. Because, like, I did that stuff too, but yeah, there's it's all politics and you don't realize till after you get out that, like, oh, there can be an environment where that doesn't exist in like a yeah. theater group of some kind. But, you know, kids can be cruel. What can I tell you? They, they can be. <laughs> and then it kind of gives us some salty personalities. Which somehow works excellent when we have podcasts where we are dissecting film with a critical eye and have some yes. fun things to say about them, which is why I love your guys' show so much. How long have you been doing it? Oh, thanks. Oh, we're, this is year three now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Cause we started this kind of as a side project. I was kind of doing two other podcasts when we started this. And I've let both of those go because I actually enjoyed this so much more than the bullshit that was going on with the other podcasts. Mm -hmm. And yeah. believe it or not, COVID too kind of played a role because once COVID hit, the people that it became more difficult to do podcasts with other people because like before COVID, Zoom wasn't like such an obvious thing to use all the time. But Scott and I obviously live together being married and all, yeah. so it's a lot easier to just sit down like hey baby you want to watch this movie okay let's talk about it it's a lot easier to do just extemporaneous conversation on movies when you live with the person a hundred percent well cool cool guys well let's kind of talk about the cult worthy classic we talk about films that are cult worthy made before 1970 and the reason why i made this second show apart from my main show is because i feel there's a lot of films that don't deserve to be put in the same sandbox as like slasher movies or drive-in theater movies or grindhouse movies. And that's where this kind of falls in because I'm a huge fan of screwball comedy, slapstick comedy, Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello. I, I like the Stooges. I was never much of a Stooges guy, but you really can't watch a comedy these days without giving some credit to the old school. And that's why I brought you on to talk about this today. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. 
nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello. Petrified, but hilariously. <laughs> Plus the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. Plus a couple of luscious but designing females in the spookiest laugh fest on record. Was this your first time seeing this film? Yes. So... I knew Abbott and Costello from Who's on First Base, of course. Right. right. Who's on First, yeah. And that was like my big introduction to them. I almost used to be able to recite that back in like high school. Mm-hmm. I can't do that anymore. It's been way too long since <laughs> I've done that. Uh, but yeah, I, I always knew they did the Universal Monster like movies and stuff with... And uh, I was like, I always have to... I gotta go back and find that and like actually watch it. And sometimes they're really hard to f-ing find. They are. Uh, it, they're either they're either in abundance for a long time, and then when you really want to watch it, they've disappeared into the vault, and then you have to like search for them again. Yeah. So yeah, uh, w- w- with me on this one, th- this has always been like the introductory Abbott and Costello film that most people have seen. It's the most popular by far. It is the most talked about, and because of its popularity, it usually doesn't get included in box sets. It's usually sold on its own or, or has a higher rental price or it's not public domain like some of the other ones. But um, the thing about this one is, is that it is an Abbott and Costello movie. But if you are a uh, fan of the other films, it has the least amount of actual Abbott and Costello in it. Like they are in a universal monster movie. And that's kind of how I feel about this film and less of an Abbott and Costello movie. What did you think about that? I would I would definitely agree. I mean, I haven't seen oh, really any of the Abbott and Costello, like the other movies, so I don't really have anything to compare it to. However, I would say that it, it feels more like, an, like a weird crossover situation, mm-hmm. uh, almost to the point, and it's weird too, because I feel like there's so many characters in this movie like you already have the universal, like the three main universal monsters, right? And then mm-hmm. you have Abbott and Costello. But for some reason, they peppered in like, it feels like at least a, a good handful of other random characters that like really have no purpose. Right. And it just it, at some points, I got confused. I'm like, okay, who is this now? Why yeah. is there is there a professor? Is he evil? Like I don't know what's happening. And when you're a kid watching this film, you're really watching it for the monsters. And for Abbott and Costello. Right. And then when you watch it with a more critical eye, you realize like, oh, this really is a kind of scattered brain production. Like you just said, the mm-hmm. characters are kind of thrown in and out. There's different plot structures to it. It almost feels like it was a script written for an entirely different purpose that just got Abbott and Costello put into it. But here's, here's, my, here's my question. Were you entertained? There were parts, yes, but when Abbott and Costello got to do their bits, they have a, a shtick. Mm-hmm. And when they got to do the shtick, it was funny, and they enjoy their shtick. But yeah, then there's other parts where you're like, the insurance plot. Oh, yes. yeah, there's an insurance guy, too. Like, who <laughs> is? Who are these like, people? I don't care about you. Get back to Abbott and Costello and the right. monsters. That's really what it was. Like, I think... Because yeah, I agree. I think when they when Abbott and Costello were in the in the picture, or the monsters, and they were interacting with each other, 
that was where the money was. But then they would throw in all these side plots and subplots and twist like random people that I don't know or care about. And I'd be like, okay, I'm I'm checking out a little bit. <laughs> like like the whole part where we first meet Dracula and the opening and closing of the coffin is hysterical. Mm-hmm. I was having a great time there. And the, the face yeah, acting like, of Lou Costello oh. is just amazing in that. Like, that's what kind of yeah, carries that good. whole that's segment. That's a good part. And for a film called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, there's actually very little Frankenstein. I was wondering that, too. Like, okay, they meet all three of them, but he, they spend the least time, I would say, with Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe that sounded best on the poster or looked best on the poster. Yeah. You know what I mean? I guess. Uh, I think it's most, I think it's probably more because the plot is we're going to take Lou Costello's brain and put it into Frankenstein. Which I love that so plot, like, by the way. Kind of like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, think, I don't even know. It's like, we, the, the last like brain was too hard to control. Get me the brain of someone stupid and put him in the Frankenstein monster. The freaking, I've got to be honest, though, when they introduced um, Costello's lady friend in the very beginning, I was like, oh, how cute. Like, she loves him, even though she's he's a slub. He's he's a schlub. I love that for him. And then I was genuinely like, oh, like, I'm surprised when it turns out she's evil and just using him. I'm like, oh, <laughs> he's sad. I was like, damn it. Yeah, and the idea that we are bringing in, I mean, you could call this like a kitchen sink film. And I don't think they were expecting this to be a success. To give you a little history on, on Abbott and Costello, their big heyday was like 1939 to like 1945 because they were on the radio, they had a bunch of films, and those films were used to sell war bonds. And they sold more war bonds with those films than pretty much anyone else. But now 1948, their career is waning. Their relationship together is getting hostile. They don't like working with each other. And that's kind of apparent, I feel, in the film. Like, they have these moments where, like, I think they're supposed to be funny and they don't even really look at each other. I think some of that translates into the final product. But lastly, Universal needed to make some money. And you've got all these properties, you've got all these IPs. Bella Lugosi's at the end of his career, so he's cheap. Lon Chaney Jr. is the end of his career, so he's cheap. Throw it in the kitchen sink, see if it works. I, I agree completely with all of that, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you could tell. There's a couple lines, especially uh, Abbott says, mm-hmm. where he's like, where he, it's like almost like vitriol. Like, I don't understand why people like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you didn't get, like, the chemistry between them, I feel like, that you got in the past. I, I remember reading... I just did like a quick read on the IMDb like trivia and mm-hmm. it said like the first thing that came up on the trivia was that, oh, uh, Bud Abbott was like, I'm not doing this movie. I'm done with him. But I don't want to do this movie. And then they offer like, we'll give you more money. Yeah. <laughs> like, Please do this movie, please. And then they give him more money. and He's like, all right, fine. But also as far as the universal monsters those actors yeah this is pretty much for all three of them like the last time i think they do those roles particularly with uh bella lugosi when Mm -hmm. he was doing his whole shtick his dracula thing you know i don't know if you've ever seen the movie ed wood i know scott has it of course yes Okay, thank God. Anyway, (laughs) all I could think of was like him doing the scene with Johnny Depp Mm -hmm. 
in the, in that movie and he's like oh in order to do the hand thing you have to be hungarian and <laughs> double jointed i just pictured him doing this and i'm like it's great yeah and that's one of the yeah. things that's kind of sad if you if you've seen that movie and if you know a little bit about his, his history and his downfall like this really was his swan mm-hmm. song and in a way i feel it's a good way to go out because if there was a universal monster in this film that gets the most screen time and the most attention it's the dracula character 100 percent. like he leads it so yeah and uh, reading some of the history on that he was just a, a pleasure to work with on this set because i think he knew he was on his way out mm-hmm. and like they i i had something in my brain that flew away <laughs> never mind <laughs> thought just flew away <laughs> yeah you can definitely tell there are some moments especially with Lugosi and uh Chaney that they're just kind of going through the motions a little bit because they've done these characters for so long I think Lugosi had been doing it for like 17 years mm-hmm. and Chaney had been doing it for like nine mm-hmm. oh that's what I was gonna say I think they were trying to read they weren't originally gonna even cast Lugosi because he was like washed up in the eyes of like the studios you know they were gonna recast him and then I think his agent like pushed for it. Like, no, he's been doing it. Like, this is the guy. If you want Dracula, this is the guy. Mm-hmm. This, this, you can't do it without Bella Lugosi. And like, that's fair. Cause you know, the guy is pretty iconic. Just like looking at him, you're like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, that's Dracula. Well, yeah, there's like him and then um, Christopher Lee are like the two Draculas yeah. everybody knows. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that there might've been I didn't read any like actual accounts from Lugosi being disappointed in it because, like I said, he got to play Dracula. He didn't have to play Dracula hammy. Like the whole point was to play Dracula the way he always did, let the comic relief bring in the funny. The person who really hated it was Lon Chaney Jr. You know, he needed the money and, you know, not to tell stories out of school, but he did have a very famous drinking problem and money problem. But when he was on set, he was always professional. So he does channel his original playing of, of Talbot, the Wolfman from his previous Wolfman movies. But you can see that the energy just isn't there. And once the film was released, even though it was a huge success, he really talked poorly about it because he didn't think that it was respectful to the character to be lampooned the way the film did. No, but you read the script, bro. <laughs> That's true. That's what I was just going to say. I'm like, you, you, you know, you did it. It wasn't too, you know, you weren't too good for it when you got the script. But also right. I think, I mean, not that I, I highly doubt that people were, you know, concerned about things being canon in the 40s. But no. <laughs> like, I don't think this movie is even considered canon, but not that that really matters. What I was going to say, the main thing that I was going to say when you started saying that, and I feel kind of bad saying this, but like, I don't I don't know anything about like the universal, like old movie monsters or anything like that. Really, mm-hmm. I'm kind of inept when it comes to that um, era of film. But. I will say when you said that Lon Chaney had a drinking problem, um, <laughs> it's I I'm not surprised by that. Mm-hmm. After watching this film, you could kind of just tell, even though it's black and white and it's an old movie, you can kind of just smell the liquor mm-hmm. <laughs> when you see Lon Chaney in this movie. You know, keeping the sanctity of the character alive when in reality, it's you didn't really change the character at all mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't really at all you were absolutely right the comedy came from 
the comedy guys. And I think mm-hmm. that's what added to the comedy itself is that everyone else is like the actors and the monsters are playing it totally straight. And meanwhile, you got Abbott and Costello over there tripping over themselves. Like that's where the real comedy comes in. And uh, I, like I said, this was, this was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I still love this movie, but you know, doing what I do now, every time I watch a film, I, I dig deeper. I allow myself to dig deeper where normally I'm a guy who can just turn off his brain and enjoy it. But now that I'm doing these podcasts and I'm watching these, these things a little bit, you know, closely, like for example, when you guys did your Poseidon adventure episode, I've always loved that movie, but you brought up the point of, oh my God, the little boy is just the worst thing ever. And why did he have to <laughs> make it all the way through the film? And then I rewatched it. I'm like, shit, they are absolutely right. Like, yeah. And that's the thing. Like I showed Scott that movie because I also like grew up watching that movie. My parents showed me that movie and it was a favorite of theirs and I loved it growing up. I thought it was, and it still is like a great movie. I still love it. But watching it as an adult, that happens with a lot of movies. You grew up with them as a kid and then you watch them as an adult and you're like, oh, this is a problem. (laughs) Like this isn't as wonderful and perfect as I once thought. But let's also face it before like a certain time period, movies were afraid to kill kids. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's true. Well, I did. He died in the book. That's why I mentioned that in the episode. I was like, well, he died in the book, but I guess they couldn't pull the trigger in the movie. <laughs> right. I don't know. Like, I feel the same way about dogs in movies. It's like I was just talking about it on my last I, episode with uh, we were talking about Omega Man and I Am Legend and uh, The Last Man on Earth. Man, as soon as a dog pops up on screen, I'm like, oh, God, that dog's dead. Like, they don't just bring dogs in there unless the dog's going to die. I mean, this might sound a little dark, but if it's an R-rated movie and a kid pops up in an action film, I'm starting to get those same vibes. I'm like, oh, that kid's dead. You know, they, <laughs> they just got to do it. They just got to pull the trigger because especially if he's annoying, which brings me to another episode that I did a couple uh, shows ago, which kind of feeds back into this one in the sense of vampires. One of my favorite movies for years was The Lost Boys. And then I didn't watch it yes. for like a decade and then I watched it this last year and I still love it. But I'm like, Corey Haim should have died. Like Corey, yeah, <laughs> Corey Haim does not appeal to me the way he did when I was like 10 years old watching that movie. So again, it's like I used to make fun of my parents for sounding old and bitter. I'm like, oh shit, is that me now? <laughs> we all become our parents at some point. <sighs> That's one that I haven't seen. Scott has that on the list for me, The Lost Boys. Yeah. I've always like heard of that movie, but I never actually watched it. But I will just to bring it back to the dog thing. Yeah. I I'm the exact same way. Like literally, I I don't know if you've seen this movie. Um, it's Wes Anderson, Isle of Dogs. Yeah, love that movie. Oh my god! I w- the dog wasn't even like his dog wasn't even dead spoilers if you haven't seen the movie and i was so when he finds the little <laughs> skeleton in the i was sobbing right. like crying <laughs> like i could i don't know i have a thing with dogs too i can't i can't with dogs in movies that die how dare you <laughs> well there's no dog in this movie but there is a wolf man <laughs> so let's kind of like kind of walk through the plot a little bit and kind of dissect what we thought as we watched this film. Cause like I said, I hadn't watched this film in probably a decade. It's not my favorite Abbott and Costello movie either. I I'm a huge fan of a few other ones, but like I said, this was the introductory. Like this was my first Abbott and Costello film as a kid. And I think that's where I feel it should be for pretty much anyone who's never seen Abbott and Costello 
if you like what they do in this film, there's more of it in their other films. And this one is kind of like the bait and switch because they give you the universal monsters as the lure for their antics. So it starts off with the two of them. They are baggage handlers for a train station. And like typical Abbott and Costello fashion, it shows like the ineptitude of, of Costello and just the straight man bitterness of Abbott. And I just, that's like the perfect combination. They play that straight man fool so well. Come on, get up out of there and go to work. That is, if your head doesn't bother you too much. His head is all right. It is, eh? But is your head all right? Certainly. Frankly, I don't get it. And frankly, you never will. I can't understand that, Dane. Of all the guys around here, that classy dish has to pick out a guy like you. What's wrong with that? Go look at yourself in the mirror sometime. Why should I hurt my own feelings? Uh, they'll answer the phone. It's funny that they keep coming back to it because it works. It just simply works. You have your straight man, you have your fool. You have like things like Tommy Boy mm -hmm. and where David Spade's the straight man and Char and uh, Chris Farley's the fool. Yeah, great like, comparison. It just it's just one of those things that it's so crazy how you could see it all the way back even to movies like 19 from 1948. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much any buddy cop movie, you know, you can attribute to that kind of dynamic. Yeah. And they even <laughs> but, did it in Shakespearean uh, times. I will say that like that I will say that that vibe like hooked me in right from the beginning. Because I've always been, like, attuned to the, like, slapsticky like, silliness vibe with that we got with Costello. And then I'm especially more attuned to, like, the, you know, smart-ass, sarcastic <laughs> tone of Abbott. So I, I was immediately hooked. I feel like that's why it's such a shame, really, that they... They just threw in so much chuffa, as <laughs> as Kevin Smith calls it. Um, it's just like a whole bunch of crap that we don't need. Like we have like the iconic comedic duo and these iconic monsters. Like we don't need a professor and an insurance guy and a fucking like lady that what was Jean? Wasn't there a lady named Jean? Or am I getting confused? There was two ladies. There was one that was evil. And then there was another lady that did, like I don't even know what. Lady. Oh, she was an insurance lady. We already had an insurance guy, though. We needed two insurance people. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, like, insurance We're guy. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. There's there's absolutely no format to this whatsoever. But what gets us to insurance guy <laughs> and insurance lady is the fact that this owner of a house of horrors named McDougal has purchased two crates from Europe to be brought to the States. And they're going to come through this train station. And one of them contains the body of Dracula in his coffin. The other one contains the Frankenstein monster. And for no real reason whatsoever, over in England, you've got Lyle Talbot, Talbot the wolfman, calling the station to tell these two baggage handlers who are just bottom-tier employees to hold these crates until he gets there under the assumption that he's McDougal. Like, you know, it's... It's just a plot driver. It makes no sense, but it gets us from A to B, and I think that's the point. Right. Though I do admit, for 1948, the effects on Lon Chaney's transformation and like Dracula turning into a bat mm -hmm. both hold up quite well. I agree 100%. Yeah. 
it's not, you know, egregious or anything. It's it's fine. <laughs> For 48, you're like, okay, <laughs> I believe that. That's fine. Well, I was <laughs> expecting like, oh, we're going to cut away and then cut back. Right. Back. I yeah. thought so, too. I was like, oh, geez, how are they doing this? <laughs> yeah, with the Wolfman transformation, it it's pretty close to the original Wolfman that Lon Chaney was in. But the transformation from Dracula into a bat was probably the most technic- technologically impressive of all the Dracula films up to that point. Like, and this was a throwaway comedy. And <laughs> they were doing some pretty good work there for sure. Can I just ask a question? Because I, again, inept when it comes to like the monster movies and stuff, right? It is like the in prior movies, like actual the monster, the actual monster movies is. The Wolfman's like mo that he ha- wants to stop all the other evil monsters, but he himself is a monster. Like, is he like the Punisher of the <laughs> Universal movie world? Like, I don't know. Or th- th- was that just for this movie? <laughs> I think the Wolfman kind of always, throughout any time he has shown up in monster movies in general, has always kind of been the fence character. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's pure evil. Sometimes he's so haunted by the fact that he can't control himself when he's the wolf but the human wants to protect people uh-huh. it's and kind of a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing where there is right. you know, he is a sympathetic character because his his human persona is highly aware and ashamed of what he becomes but he also feels like he could do more good with his knowledge in preventing future evils from happening whether it's other werewolves turning people into werewolves or killing them those few nights that he turns into a wolf during the month are worth the sacrifice of of trying to help other people and i think that's where this comes into play there were a few other monster mashup movies a couple years before this house of dracula house of frankenstein those are technically canon and in a way this could kind of play into that but it it doesn't really but if you dissected it enough and you were a big enough uh, film nerd, you could. <laughs> but the the biggest thing is that the guy that plays the Frankenstein monster in those movies, Glenn Strange, who took over for Boris Karloff, plays the character again in this one. And it is, like to me, the most impressive, most Karloff-like performance of a Frankenstein monster that I've seen, at least in the Universal movies. Yeah, he did a really good job taking over for Karloff. You could barely like tell the difference. He doesn't have a big enough part where you could really, I think, Mm-hmm. be exposed yeah and they don't really explain like the motivation for why dracula wants to bring the frankenstein monster back i always thought that was kind of a a loose end in the script you know he brings him back to control him but like what's the end game we nearly never really get an end game for that you know unless right, you guys what does got he it. need him for <laughs> he already has the power to control people <laughs> with his like weird vampire powers <laughs> well i guess if you have frankenstein's monster you're going to use it's it. It's a much better uh, protective thing in the daytime than... Oh, so he wants like a body man, basically. I guess. I guess. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. Yeah, you're, you're not going to have a Camaro in the garage and not drive it, I guess. It's kind of like the whole thing. It's like, I've got the monster. I'm going to use <laughs> it, you know? that makes sense. So yeah, the Dracula comes out of the coffin while uh, Costello is by himself in the dark in this little way station. And yeah, it's like this five minute scene. It almost goes on too long. I think any other performance between Lugosi, besides Lugosi and Costello, that scene would have been uncomfortably long, but it works. And, and they play it really well with that whole like in the dark, creeping behind him, lurking behind him. And then of course, typical fashion, Bud Abbott comes in. He's like, what? I didn't see anything. You're crazy. You're dumb. Let's get out of here. You know, the whole time he's being lurked by a 
by a Dracula. Oh, so what? Maybe the lightning struck the power line or something. I got more messes around here. Never mind. Take off that canvas. Take it off. Take it off. Hey, coffin. Coffin. Dracula crest. Dracula's crest. I wonder if uh, Mr. McDougal expects people to think that Dracula's really in there. No, don't. Please don't. Oh, now, calm, calm, calm. Dracula was just a, a legendary character. He never existed. No. Certainly not. Fold up this canvas. I'm going out and get the other crate. Now, if you want me, just holler. Holler, old chick. You understand? Oh, chick! Uh, what do you want? What kept you? I haven't left yet. The next time, don't take so long. Oh, come on. Fold this up. Get busy. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. Dracula. Chick! The whole plot kind of comes to fruition when we find out that... Dracula is going by this pseudonym, Dr. Lejos, who is like this scientist. He has his castle. Somehow he can afford a castle in the States, but he had to be shipped via Europe in a <laughs> coffin. Yeah. <laughs> I just so badly wanted him to be Dr. Acula. That just would have like, ooh, chef's kiss. That would have made the movie for me. <laughs> oh, God. Though I do want to talk about In the House of Horrors, I thought one of the funniest parts was when Abbott comes in and Dracula's just standing behind Oh my him. god, I was dying. I'm like, uh, just turn around. <laughs> it was so great. But clearly Abbott and Costello don't subscribe to the rule of three because after like, literally uh, after three times of them doing the same bit of like, oh, Abbott says, oh, Costello, you're being so silly. Do, 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 walks out. Mm-hmm. He starts reading the thing. Dracula pops out, sticks his hand out of the thing, and he's like, oh, chick, ah! But it kept, it like 15 times, it felt like. But it did, I will say, it did work. It didn't get tired, really, but I was like, okay, clearly, at some point, this is going to get annoying. Like, can we wrap this bit up? It's almost like, I'm not sure if you guys are fans of Family Guy, but Family Guy and Seth MacFarlane, I feel, take a lot of cues from older films like this, where like, yes, the rule of three definitely applies in traditional comedies. These two, especially in this film, they push the joke way more than three. And I feel it's either up to like the director, the editor or themselves when they realize, okay, if we do one more double take, if we do one more little sight gag, then it's going to be too much. And I, I feel Family Guy has kind of taken <laughs> that that narrative as well. Like, how many times can Peter Griffin grab his yeah. knee in pain before it's too much? And somehow I feel they find the right formula. I think this is kind of like the origin for that, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, I would say so. That makes sense for sure. The girlfriends or the love interests who are not who they seem. Yes, and the first one is seemingly genuinely attracted to to Costello, which really just grinds Abbott's gears, and rightfully so. But we find out that she's actually just working for Dr. Lejos in attempt to get his simple mind into the Frankenstein monster. And then I feel there is the most useless character in the film, that scientist guy in the basement, the good-looking one, who really has no reason to be there. 
that's literally what I was thinking. I'm like, okay, he's got to be some kind of like lackey or like baby vampire, something. Like there's got to be something to him because they just introduced him as professor and then that's it. So they shoehorn just out of the clear blue sky. He's got like this like little crush on the insurance lady magically within like literally a scene. He's magically got a crush on the insurance lady and that's his that's their plot for the rest of the movie. I don't understand. Guys, <laughs> did guys, you not think you had enough? Guys, I think Dracula he's got it. has to pay the mortgage somehow. <laughs> so he has to rent out the oh laboratory to pay for this castle <laughs> in America. That he didn't. He... That's true. He wasn't. They, they the coffin was in Europe, right? And then it came here to America. And then yeah, that didn't occur to me. Why does he have a castle? Did he just have that before in America? And then he's just like, ah, back to my summer home. Oh in my America. god! I think that Scott cracked the code. Nothing though. makes sense. I, I think I think that Dracula is on a fixed income. I think he's on a budget. He's like, I can't afford to fly first class to the states. I'm gonna ship myself in a in a packing container. <laughs> you know, someone's got to pay the scientist guy. Universal <laughs> was on a budget. Let's be real. <laughs> Seriously. Hey there, cult worthy podcast listeners. I have an amazing new app for you. It is called Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them aloud to you in a natural human voice, unlike mine. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable all in one place. You can browse articles and topics from which you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you'd like from sports, tech, business, science, Bitcoin, even the Kardashians. It will find you the latest articles and read them to you aloud. And they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries, including mine, the Cult Worthy Podcast. They even have digital radio. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link available in my episode notes. That's C-U-L-T-C-A-S-T to receive one month free premium subscription. Once again, check out Newsly and thank you for listening to the Cult Worthy Podcast. And, and, and like this conversation just kind of led me to a thought because I think we've seen enough films or TV shows about the making of films and TV shows where let's say you've got a concept or a script and there's probably some executive sitting at a desk. He's like, okay. You've got Abbott and Costello. You've got old Bella Lugosi, the Frankenstein monster, and the Wolfman. Nobody wants to f*** these people. So let's get some good-looking people into this film so at least we have some eye candy. So you've got the good-looking scientist guy and the two rather attractive female personalities in this film that really don't have a, a play in it, but they're the eye candy. Yeah, I mean, and that concept also is not adverse to movies even today <laughs> no you it's have, not you know pointless character with boobies yeah. just to be pointless character with boobies all the time you know or shirtless guy <laughs> take your pick but yes i that would make sense i mean yeah they clearly were hedging their bets really with abbott and costello and the universal monsters because as you said before they were kind of on the end of their track right so they were trying to just throw like everything but the kitchen sink like you said into this movie just please watch our movie please people 
please come pay money <laughs> to watch our movie. Though I do have to give the actress who plays the first love interest, the one who's actually evil. Sandra. Uh, because when Frankenstein's monster lifts her into the air and throws her <laughs> out, her the, out the, window. the window. Girl. <laughs> we love that. She hits the set. Yeah. She hits the top bottom of the window Vim and Burthen. bounces through the window. <laughs> them birth and hips got messed up. And in the 40s, them's important things. So... And Good I always remember, you, I yeah, always no. remember that scene. And then rewatching it this this week, I was like, "Damn, that must have hurt!" Like that was a wrestler thrill, right? Yeah, she there. got yeeted <laughs> out that window. <laughs> like it was, oh, this bitch empty heat, <laughs> like out the window. I'm like, holy cow! And it was clearly her. It wasn't like a stunt person. It's all it one shot. Like, like they would afford a stunt person. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like you know. That's yeah, we're not doing true. cutaway shots. This is a we're doing it in one people and we're not getting a second window and action, you know. So there she goes. <laughs> we're not getting that cheap candy glass stuff <laughs> through the real shit. Oh my god. Now, this film does suffer from the second act blues that so many films I think in the 40s and and 50s kind of did. You have a very strong opening. You have a very strong ending. And then when they're trying to figure out where the film's going to go in the middle, this does suffer from that. Because, like you said, with the mix of all these characters and these like convoluted plot points, especially like when the two ladies go to powder their nose because she's suspicious of the other, you know, there's mm-hmm. just like, okay, you know, while the one's in the other room, the investigator's going to peek through her stuff in the least conspicuous way possible. You know, she's like, oh, she's in the other room. I'm going to open up all her drawers and read all of her stuff, hoping she doesn't come back in, you know, that kind of stuff. But again, like this is, this is the thing about this film. Just getting off topic for a second. I don't think they expected this film to be as big as it was. So it was kind of like, in my opinion, uh, a college student handing in his thesis last minute. He kind of bullshitted it. He's like, oh, hopefully I get a C so I can move on to the next class. And then he gets an A and he's like, oh shit, like now I've got expectations. And I feel that's what happened here because the movie is funny. The movie is good, but the movie's got problems. Money and success in the box office fixes problems. And after this movie came out, all of a sudden they had Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, meet the invisible man, meet the wolf man, like all these different, Jekyll and Hyde. These guys were on their way out. They were about to break up. And then this film becomes a hit. And now they're like, oh shit, now what are we going to do? And they ride this train of monster movies. I mean, and I think the second act is a very good example of not really caring how the film really turned out because the second act kind of sucks. Second, I couldn't even tell you like what exactly happens in the second act. I know they go to the castle and then they're like, hello, everyone. These are all our characters. And then they all go to a masquerade ball. Why they go to a masquerade ball? What is the purpose of the masquerade? I don't know. Who's throwing this thing? I don't know. Why are we here? (laughs) So Abbott can wear a wolf mask. That's it. Oh, right. That whole thing is weird. But that never gets really clear enough. It doesn't. First of all, the idea that anyone under the clear blue sky would think that a skinny Bud Abbott in a wolf mask is the same person as a 
like a, a a bulky ass Lon Chaney with fur all over his face in the best like got to go glue I've ever seen. <laughs> Great glue job there, guys. But like, yeah, there's no like it doesn't make sense. The mask is plastic. Like you can knock on it and it echoes. Like it's not the same thing. <laughs> exactly. No, he. I think so he nailed it right weird. on the head. Is like. That masquerade ball is just a plot driver to get Bud Abbott in a Wolfman mask. Like, I can't think of any other reason. That's that's it. And to get blamed for murder, right. like you said. Again, I don't think that they were really trying on this one. But there's so much of it that works that a lot of people just look right past it. And again, like, there is a lot of Dracula manipulation where it's like, did he, did he turn uh, Joan into a vampire or did he just mesmerize her like sometimes you can't tell who he's mesmerized or if he's actually turned people into a vampire it's all kind of right. wishy-washy so the best scene from the masquerade ball is where they throw Costello into the wall and he's like no one will ever believe you but Abbott and he's like I'll get a witness and he grabs the knife that was funny <laughs> throws Costello into the wall again and the knight lifts his helmet up and goes I didn't see anything that, that was funny yeah yeah, there's there are great, but also gags that in this. whole that whole segment is weird because, like, literally, if you had asked me, like, oh, remember the insurance guy at that point? I'm like, what insurance guy? I don't remember the guy that owns the haunted like horror house. Who? I don't know, but he magically is there. He's like, where's my stuff? And it's like, who are you again? I don't know. Why are you here? Why are you dressed like the devil? Why are you at a party when you're like so up in arms about all your stuff being missing? And then, and then, like, they have this fight for no reason. And it's like, look, things are happening. Movie. It's, it's just a whole bunch of string together crap that, like, it's, I don't even, yeah. That's the whole second act. And let's not forget, like, they go to the castle and back, like, three times. Like, they go to the castle, and then they go to the masquerade ball, and then they go back to the castle. Like, they keep going back and forth to this castle, and, the, you know, the film concludes in the castle, which it needs to, but there is a great chase scene at the end that involves all the monsters. You got the Wolfman chasing, you got the Frankenstein chasing, you've got Dracula turned into a bat, which the whole conclusion of the Wolfman and Dracula's run in the film is actually pretty cool. I really did dig that. Oh, yeah. The Wolfman grabbing Dracula as a bat and the basically falling to their deaths. Great. Yeah, that was that was cool. I mean... That's the thing, yeah. like, when you... When you go in between, like, the beginning, again, like, the yucks get you hooked, right? And then at the end, you kind of wake up from, like, a daze of, like, what the hell? I don't even know what's happening. And you're like, oh, yay, monsters fighting each other. <laughs> and you're like, yay, cool, things are happening. But then in the middle, it's, like, all a blur of weirdness. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that was fun. And, like, the whole idea of um, Costello getting, like, uh, you know, tied up and be like we're gonna take your brain and put it in that guy and it's like oh no like that's actually like a little bit of excitement yeah i, I do wonder because i don't know when film changed to like oh we have to be this long to be theatrically released mm -hmm. that's what it felt like it felt like they were padding to like get the runtime to be longer exactly it so is. i don't know like when because i know now it's got to be like oh you got to be at least decently close to an hour and a half to be like theatrically released oh, i mean i wish it was an hour and a half now like there, there are some that sneak away with like 70 minutes but i mean these days films just keep getting longer and longer especially these you know mcu films are like three hours long now but abbott and costello films like marx brothers films were were generally rather short 
they were like an hour, hour 15. Most of the time they were matinee films or double features. They were stuff that you'd see with like your kids and family during the day. So the nighttime films would be like reserved for dramas and Gone with the Wind and things like that. The reason why I consider this a cult-worthy classic and wanted to talk about it, because A, it is a film that I've loved, and even though it's got tons of flaws, I still love, but this film does something that I think many films have failed, and now we're seeing a lot of studios try to recreate. It is a genre buster, and it is a film that is trying to create all of these inter- connected intellectual properties all into one movie. And the fact that they used Abbott and Costello as the vessel for it, I think really is important because now you're seeing these films. Did you guys know about the dark universe that Universal was trying to put together? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What a mess that was. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they try to redo this of trying to create this cinematic universe of we're having our mummy movie with Tom Cruise. And then there was supposed to be like an invisible man, Johnny Depp movie. And then there was going to be a Jekyll and Hyde, mm-hmm. Javier Bardem movie. And then at some point they were going to all interconnect them. The problem was, is it wasn't very good. And it was a blatant knockoff of what they were doing with the Marvel cinematic universe. The fact that this film did it in 1948 and was a hit. And it used a pair of screwball comedians as its vessel. That is something that maybe someone needs to kind of take a second look at because I think a lot of people are just kind of tired of this doom and gloom and a little comedy, a little, a little fun is what these films need. It kind of reminds me of when they fired, uh, uh, what's his name? Lord and his partner from the Han Solo movie because they were too funny. Yes. And, and then Ron Howard yes. got brought in to make it more serious. I mean, it wasn't a terrible film, but it wasn't trying to do something new. No, but you could tell it was, well, I also think the problem with, since we're jumping onto this universe topic, um, I think the major problem with the universe is everyone wants to be what Marvel is now. Yes. Like, oh, hey, they're 15 movies deep or 20-something movies deep. We want to be where they're at right now, but not where they started. Yeah. So we're not making... Like, The Mummy had all these interconnecting parts right at the beginning. You're like... Just make me a good mummy movie first. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think they were trying to make Tom Cruise in that movie like the Tony Stark mm-hmm. like archetype. Because he was kind of, from what I, I didn't watch that movie because I just, I couldn't do it. But <laughs> <laughs> from what I understand, the Tom Cruise character in that movie was kind of an asshole. And, you know, then he like becomes the hero. And it's like, okay, clearly it didn't work out too good. But, yeah, it, I think that's absolutely right. I think DC's been trying to do the same thing for the past, like, what, 10 years probably by now. Mm-hmm. And it, it ain't working out because you got to just kind of do your own thing a little bit. And then, you know, Marvel's its own entity now. Yeah, that first Iron Man movie didn't try to connect anything. I mean, they they tease a little bit in the, in the post credit scene, but they just were trying to make an Iron Man movie. They were testing the waters to see if it worked. Scott brings up a great point where it's like, oh, they were successful and they brought the Avengers together. Let's do that with this without creating a good origin story for these characters first. They're just trying to throw them in there. Yeah. But, but like I said, we've, we've seen genre busting films come and go since this film came out in 1948. You know, we've seen campy versions of films. We've seen crossover films. 
nothing really ever had that much success. Like this is one of those films where I think that it's important that your genre blending horror and screwball comedy together. A comic kind of like the way that, you know, how Tarantino will take kung fu movies and throw them in with grindhouse 70s movies. You know, movies that feel like they don't belong together, but under the right filmmaker, they seem like they were made for each other. That's kind of kind of what this ended up being, and we're just not seeing a lot of of this. I think the closest thing to this, at least for one movie, would be Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Because that was it had this screwball concept, that, like, like complete screwball concepts, but like a lot of comedy mixed in with the horror stuff. So horror tends to like to do that, where they're like, "Hey, we've got a little too serious with the horror lately. Let's just make one movie that just completely makes fun of everything that's popular in horror." Scream did it with mm-hmm. yeah. making fun of the slashers, you know. Cabin in the Woods did it with all the serious horrors we got through the 2000s. Shaun mm-hmm. of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Made fun of the zombie film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's true. I didn't really make that connection, but you're right. Yeah. Like, horror and comedy go so well together. And I feel that like horror and romance and horror and like sexuality was just kind of overplayed in the 80s and 90s. No one really cares about that anymore. We want to laugh. I think we're kind of done with with steamy thrillers and things like that. You know, they don't make any money in the theater, so no one watches them anymore. In fact, most of them just get made fun of on podcasts these days. So I guess they have a a, a place for for something <laughs> in the universe. But but horror and comedy, I think, really work together. The Evil Dead series is like a perfect example of that. You know? Oh my god! Yeah. You know, except instead of Abbott and Costello, it's three Stooge comedy. Uh, I, I think also another big reason just why horror and comedy work so well together because this is a this is a cool concept to kind of follow because you're so if you keep throwing horror at people and just go straight horror eventually people become numb to it yeah just like if you keep throwing comedy at people eventually the laughs start dwindling Mm -hmm. so when you flip them both and like oh i'll scare this shit out of you but then i'll calm you down and make you laugh a little to take you away i can then scare you again Mm-hmm. And to make you laugh, they're a good balance point for each other. Yeah, I think Freddy Krueger is a good example of that, too, because the first Nightmare in Elm Street, very serious, no laughs. The second one, overly serious. And then the third one, they start giving him some gags and some lines, and they bring some tongue-in-cheek humor into it, you know, thanks to Chunk Russell and, and Frank Darabont for that. But the Freddy Krueger that we think of now is more of that Freddy Krueger with the side jokes and the gags than the really scary, ominous version of him in the first film. So yeah, like again, th- this this film is just again kind of proving a point that horror and comedy were kind of made for each other. Yeah, I think because I, I hadn't thought about that for a while, the fact that like there was kind of that fad. I feel like mostly in like the, I want to say like the early or mid 90s where like it was like a lot of like slinky, like sexy, like thrillers and like, you know, nobody cares about that anymore like now they come out with movies like um like femme fatale and like the mm. movies were like oh the the guy your creepy neighbor is breaking into your house and oh i'm all alone nobody cares about those movies mm. anymore it's like 25 cent you know like in a red box somewhere yeah. dying alone tumbleweed you know <laughs> flying by nobody cares but <laughs> but yeah horror comedy i feel like never really it hasn't gotten old yet i feel like 
because comedy is always changing. There's so many different kinds of comedy and so many different kinds of horror that you can really weave a lot of different subgenres together. There's not really a lot of different subgenres in romance. It's either it's a good <laughs> romance or it's like cheesy and shitty. And then with like horror romance, there's some there's always some weird ones like uh remember the movie Warm Bodies? Yeah. Where it was like, "Oh, I fell in love with a zombie." Oh. <laughs> the way you just said that sounded like a Jerry Springer like tag, <laughs> like I fell in love with a zombie. <laughs> Bitch, that's my zombie. Stay away from my zombie. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, this movie, 100%, I will admit, even though I'm a defender of it, has its flaws. What What are the winning points of this film that you would try and, like, sell somebody on this movie on, like, why it is important to see at least once? Like, what is what is it that really kind of did it for you? And you can both answer. I would say just immediately the, the back and forth between Abbott and Costello. Because what makes them different from like a Three Stooges or something of that regard where it's like a lot of pratfalls and physical comedy. They have physical comedy too, but I feel like where they kind of breathe and eat is like their Banter. back and forth and their mm-hmm. dialogue like with each other. It's very quick, very bah, 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 and it's they're, they're kind of playing tennis with each other verbally. Mm-hmm. Like there was the one, there was the one like, bit of dialogue where by some ridiculous i don't know why i don't know why the plot is what it is in this movie but at one point both of the female love interests in this movie are vying for costello under false pretenses for different false pretenses but both under false pretenses and they're like fawning over him and stuff. And Abbott's pissed because, you know, he's like, Where, where's my pretty lady? Why do they like you? You're fat. Like, that's basically what he, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're fat and stupid. Why do women want to be with you? <laughs> and um, Costello says to Abbott, like, you know, if I had two cigarettes, I'd give you one. And he's like, yeah. If I had two pairs of shoes, I'd give you a pair. Yeah. And if I had, uh, if I had two. If I had two women. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You take those cigarettes at the. No, I. <laughs> and if i had two girls i would tell you to take that cigarette and that pair of shoes and go for a walk somewhere <laughs> it was like a really good look wilbur we've always been pals haven't we oh yes mm-hmm. we've always shared and shared alike haven't we mm-hmm. well now look let's be reasonable come on i've always shared with you that you have if i had two cigarettes i'd give you one that's right and if i had two pair of shoes i'd give you a pair don't i know that and if i have two girls yeah, yeah, well why don't you light that cigarette, put on those shoes, and take a walk for yourself? That's just what I'm going to do, but with you. Little, like, bit. It's it was great. probably my favorite little verbal uh, verbal sparring bit in the movie. But, yeah, I would say that's worth the price of admission alone. And just, like, the audacity and the wonderfulness that is Bella Lugosi. I enjoy yeah. seeing him. <laughs> He's so good. Yeah, all of, I agree with all of what Frankie said. But I also want to add, there is so much in this movie... That as you're watching it, you can connect to other things. Mm-hmm. It's just like a web, almost like a web drug. Oh, like this could be connected to here. Or like I, I joked with like the door things like uh, when Costello is like locking the door to lock the wolf man in accidentally mm-hmm. after stealing some fruit. It's like I wonder if he counted these. This could totally <laughs> be a Scooby-Doo thing here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
You've got the revolving wall, so, like in a uh, Young Frankenstein. You know, you've got a lot of little things. Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. So you could see all those connections, and that's one of the things I like about going back to older movies at times. Is as you're watching them, you can kind of go, "Oh wait, I wonder if this influenced this person." Mm-hmm. Like we just did Snake Eyes. Uh, recently, which is a Nicolas Cage movie. De Palma, love it. (laughs) To hear Brian De Palma talk about how he was inspired by Rashomon, Mm -hmm. and you're like, wow, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But they're two very, very, very different movies. (laughs) They're different movies, but like the whole different perspective of how the story is told, 100%. And it's not the first one to do that, but in De Palma fashion, he makes it very shiny and flamboyant, which I'm a sucker for it, I have to admit. But yeah, 100%. And, and for me, you know, like my thing with this film is, like I said, it was my my jumping off point to explore more Abbott and Costello movies. And they made a bunch. I mean, these guys made three a year. This is during like the universal just movie machine, cranking them out, production values, meh. Most of them have a musical number, whether it's like the Andrews sisters or someone. But there are a lot of diamonds in the rough when it comes to all those films. So if this is your first Abbott and Costello film, I suggest to go watch Buck Privates, a movie called Abbott and Costello, Time of Their Lives, and then Who Done It. Those are my three favorite. I think they're the three most well-made and best structured ones. They kind of put this one to shame, but like I said, because of the monsters, because of the advertising and its cult following, it is the one that most people are exposed to first. I'm putting all three of those on my watch list, <laughs> just so you know. And I think most of them you can find like either on YouTube or archive.org. A lot of the ones that aren't as popular as this one are pretty easy to find these days. Before we close it out, um, any final thoughts on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? I think if, you, if you're if you a fan of the Universal Monsters and if you're a fan of like horror and comedy, it's nice to see where things go. And I think you definitely should go back and see the beginnings to gain more appreciation of movies now. Uh, what I would say, I, I wouldn't go into this looking for a, a horror situation necessarily. I mean, it's not the horror that... I feel like the horror genre has evolved so much and devolved, maybe, according to some people, over the years. But um, I would say that if you're a moviegoer and a movie lover that maybe has a a gap in your knowledge when it comes to older movies, that's why I like your show, because you talk about older movies that m- maybe a lot of people don't really... Uh, you know, seek out mm-hmm. on their own. I feel like there's a lot of merit to older movies that maybe their their pacing isn't as quick as movies now or their dialogue isn't as snappy, although some of the dialogue in this is pretty snappy because right. Alvin <laughs> and Costello, as I mentioned before. But I think there is a lot of merit, kind of like Scott was saying, in watching where it all began mm-hmm. and seeing how that you know different styles different uh production things and different writing styles kind of influenced what came to be these days you know i think it's there's a lot of value in that and as a movie buff i've certainly gotten a lot out of that myself so that's what i'd say well said well uh do you want to plug anything Uh, talk about your podcast for a second i mean i'm sure everyone knows where to find it where we find all podcasts but what do you guys got coming up? What's what's going on in Shoot the Flick world? 
Oh my goodness. So um, shoot the flick. There's a new episode every Wednesday. So feel free to check us out. Uh, Spotify, iTunes, all that good stuff. Uh, wherever podcasts are podcasted, <laughs> we are there probably. Um, but what I will say is that we've done previously the first two seasons of the <laughs> Nickelodeon show Avatar The Last Airbender, which I never saw. And uh, we're going to do coming up the final season which I assume is going to make me very emotional and <laughs> scar me for life. So I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, also we we have some other fun episodes coming up. We're doing uh, a Marvel movie every month, seeing as how we talked about Marvel before. Yeah. Uh, I think the next one we're doing is Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's going to be in the beginning of June. Uh, we just came out with our Avengers episode in the beginning of May. So feel free to check all of those out as well, if you wish. Or as you said, super people doing super things is, I think, how you quoted it in your episode on that. That's about right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something I'd say. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping on and talking about this movie. Um, everyone, go listen to Shoot the Flick. I actually have a link to their show on my website, thecultworthy.com, under Cultworthy Partners. And you can find my show the same place where you found it right now and their show as well. But do follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the Cultworthy Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd and do check out thecultworthy.com regularly for movie news, blogs, and the latest reviews. Scott, Frankie, it was a pleasure. I hope you guys have a good night and we should do this again soon. Definitely, yes. Definitely down to do another one. And we will see everyone later. <laughs>